I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Kendra Kruger. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, August 19th, 2014. Coming up, we'll talk about marine sanctuaries and why they're important to everyone. Ocean creatures and humans is like, even to those of us in landlocked Colorado. We all have favorite ocean places we've visited as divers, surfers, beach frolickers, or ocean lovers. Some of these areas are threatened and some are thriving. This is a chance to learn how you can get involved. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Researchers at Virginia Tech have discovered a new form of plant communication, but it's not exactly like a friendly, hello, how are you? In fact, it's probably more like biological form of mind control. The process was studied between a parasitic plant known as a daughter and two host plants, one being a tomato. The parasitic plant is known to suck the moisture and nutrients out of the host plant using an appendage that penetrates the surface of the plant. The study, published in the August 15th issue of the journal Science, observed that this penetration actually opened up an exchange channel for messenger RNA to move from one plant to the other. Messenger RNA helps to decode the DNA in a cell and tells the cell what actions to take and which proteins to make. It was previously thought that messenger RNA was much too fragile and short-lived to withstand traveling between two different species. The question now is, what are they saying to each other? The scientists speculate that parasitic plants may be able to convince the hosts to weaken its immune response and effectively take over its control system. Beyond plants, this process could be happening in other organisms, such as bacteria and fungi. By studying this mechanism, there could be profound implications on controlling parasitic plants on crops around the world. Thinking about having a second scoop of ice cream tonight? You may think twice, especially if you're a mom-to-be. It's a no-brainer that a mother's actions can affect her fetus, but now there's some more hard evidence. A paper published in the journal Science last week reveals that what mothers do or don't eat during pregnancy can alter the DNA of their offspring, and these changes can be passed on to grandchildren and even great-grandchildren. The specific DNA changes that the researchers found were of the epigenetic variety. That means that the messages encoded in the DNA molecules are not changed, but rather the molecules sitting on top of the DNA that act like on-and-off switches are changed. The study was conducted on mice. Those that were put on extremely low-calorie diets had children and grandchildren who suffered from diabetes-like symptoms. Many other studies have shown that both maternal and paternal drug and alcohol use can have adverse effects on offspring. But this study, by the University of Cambridge graduate student Elizabeth Radford and colleagues, is the first to show an epigenetic role of diet. For those of you who believe the science of healthy lifestyles is worth studying, this Wednesday morning, you can attend a presentation at Boulder's Egg and I restaurant in the Basemar Shopping Center. Leading the talk and discussion will be a medical doctor, a psychiatrist, and a psychotherapist. They contend that many pharmaceutical drugs and processed foods, which are advertised as healthy, can actually harm our well-being and are contributing to the worldwide increases in allergies, autoimmune diseases, and mood disorders. The presenters are Dr. Jeff Gerber, a physician, 
Dr. Will Vanderveer, psychiatrist, and licensed clinical social worker, Barry Erdman. They've titled the lecture, A Menu for Better Physical and Mental Health. They will explain how you can benefit from a better understanding of how gut bacteria, carbohydrates, and the hormone insulin affect physical health and mood. They'll also provide suggestions about reference material for further study. The free lecture is tomorrow, Wednesday morning, starting at 9 a.m. at the Egg and I Restaurant, 2574 Baseline Road in Boulder. It is sponsored by The Interface, a community forum covering the intersection of spirituality and psychotherapy. For more information, go to www.interfaceboulder.org. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. Today we continue our series called The Ocean is Us. It's the third feature interview that explores how we in landlocked Colorado are connected to the oceans, why they matter so much to us all, and what's at stake right now. Today we'll discuss marine sanctuaries, the conservation science behind establishing them, and their ecological and economic benefits. In fact, they're a hot-button issue in Washington right now. In June, President Obama announced his intention to make a vast area of the Central Pacific Ocean off-limits to fishing, energy exploration, and other activities. If the plan goes through, and you could make a difference, they could create a marine sanctuary. It would double the swath of ocean that is fully protected globally. My guests today are devoted to marine conservation. Billy Causey, a marine scientist, works at the Office of National Marine Sanctuaries at NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. He's a regional director of the Southeast Atlantic, Gulf of Mexico, and Caribbean region. And he's on the phone from his office in Key West, Florida. And here in the studio is Vicki Nichols-Goldstein. She's the founder of Colorado Ocean Coalition. It's a nonprofit based in Boulder that's dedicated to helping people living inland to connect to ocean conservation issues. Formerly, she directed the marine advocacy organization Save Our Shores. Billy and, Vil- and Vicki, welcome to the show. Thank you, Susan. Hi, Billy. Hey, Vicki. Hey, Susan, thank you so very much for having us. I'm, you're so welcome. Really great to have you. So I wanted to start with just giving me, giving people a sense of what, what these marine sanctuaries are. I know there are many categories of them, but Bill, Billy, since you're, you've been immersed in them for decades... Well, uh, National Marine Sanctuaries are, um, as, as you mentioned, are a part of the U.S. Department of Commerce and specifically NOAA. We are in the National Ocean Service of NOAA, and we, are, we have our own office, the Office of National Marine Sanctuaries. We currently have 14 around the nation. Uh, they range in size, but uh, there are 13 National Marine Sanctuaries and one Marine National Monument. And what's the difference between them? In a, in a big scale. Well, I guess if you if you took an underwater national park or a, a wildlife refuge in the Department of Interior and compared them to national marine sanctuaries, we operate under the National Marine Sanctuary Act, and we are a multiple-use program. In other words, we have a variety of, of commercial and recreational uh, activities that go on in our national marine sanctuaries, and our job is to protect uh, the resources and the habitats, everything that's important to continue those activities in our areas. 
For instance, here in the Florida Keys, we're surrounded. The Florida Keys are surrounded by one of the largest national marine sanctuaries. Yet we have a huge amount of recreational commercial activity that goes on. Someone needs to keep a pulse on the health of the environment that's being used. So it seems almost an impossible feat, especially in areas of su- that are such heavily used. I mean, at the coral reefs, something like 70% destroyed even around Florida Keys, which kind of raises the question of what, what the track record has been so far, best and worst case scenarios. Well, I, I think we have to look at what's happening globally, not to sidestep that question because it's a very good one. But what's happening globally is that we're affected by four, what we call the big four. Number one is climate change and all the associated impacts such as elevated sea surface temperatures. Now we're seeing ocean acidification. We're seeing all the problems that are affecting corals on a global scale. We also have uh, land-based sources of pollution. And you all in, in Colorado, right there in Boulder, have an effect on the Gulf of Mexico and eventually on the Florida coral reefs. So land-based source of uh, land-based source of pollution is the second problem. The other is habitat loss and destruction. And and that is when we have a hurricane whether it's a natural or unnatural event with the conditions that we have in the oceans, it's harder for some areas to recover. And the fourth one is overfishing. Mm-hmm. Now, some people put that one at the top of the list. Um, I tend to put it at the bottom because overfishing is something that many agencies are involved right now trying to manage and correct. Um, we need to have more people focused on the habitat losses and more people focused on pollution as our look, leaders on a global scale attack climate change. And now, you mentioned the big four. I'm going to turn to Vicki a bit since you said, yes, we here in Boulder and, and uh, Denver and all around Colorado where we reach here. Are, are so connected, and you could talk about that a bit, the watersheds. Oh, yeah, absolutely. How we handle our land is a very significant feature on what ends up in the Mississippi River and then down into the Gulf of Mexico. So choices between using herbicides, pesticides, um, 80% of the plastics even <clears throat> excuse me, come from inland sources. So how we live our daily lives really can contribute to the water quality down in the Gulf of Mexico. And the Gulf actually has one of the largest dead zones that come out from the from the Mississippi. So farming practices, agricultural practices all really contribute. So it's nice that Billy and I have been able to work together to try to make that connection. And using uh, some of the outreach activities that we have through the Colorado Ocean Coalition, really helping people feel empowered that they can either contribute to the pollution problems, or they can be engaged to actually help in reducing our impacts that uh, eventually affect the ocean. Yeah, and we'll, we'll get more to some of the physical, actual activities happening here, but it's interesting that we um, pretty much perched on the Colorado Divide. We've got what, one watershed heading to California and the other into the Mississippi, so quite tangibly the water mm-hmm. we have here goes, goes to those oceans. We, in essence, are the beginning of the ocean up on the Continental Divide. We are the beginning there. <laughs> That's huge, actually. So, Billy, I know you love to pronounce the one in Hawaii that is what, the largest protected area in the United States, stretching, what isn't it, the length of the northwestern Hawaiian islands? You can it say is, it first it? and then tell us about why that's so special. Well, it's the Papahanaumokuakea Marine National Monument. And it's a, it's a vast area in the Pacific. It's over 140,000 square nautical miles in size. And it is a, an incredible area. It is somewhat remote. 
But it gives us as a program, it gives us as a nation, an opportunity to get out in front uh, of some of the activities that are sure to reach that area at some point and provide conservation and protection to some very unique areas. And, and there are you know, endangered species such as the monk seal. The, the islands are important bird rickeries. Uh, there are many, many species that uh, only can be found in those islands. So that is a very unique area that has not had the footprint of man like places like the Florida Keys or like some of our, our California sites. Is because it's yeah. so remote? That's that's right. It is remote, and, and it is protected a little that way. But, you know, we're seeing more and more people reach uh, distant areas, whether it's um, on land at the, at the top of the mountain, uh, mountains or whether it's in the bottom of the ocean. People are starting to leave their footprint. And uh, technical diving is becoming more and more popular with people going to incredible depths. So it, it's giving us an opportunity to get out in front of some of the activities, not to stop the activities, to be, but to be able to be there and manage the activities as they, they arrive. Yeah, and could you give us a couple really concrete examples of how some species in their habitat maybe would not be here at all today if not for these protected areas, be they fully protected or sort of multiple-use areas? Well, I, I think we can look a, a lot at what's been done. Um, I'm going to use a couple of terrestrial analogies, but we, we've seen the combination of science and, and management come together in protecting certain bird rookeries and, and areas that are unique on, on land. We also are starting to see that with sea turtles, where we're protecting habitats uh, like the Padre Island National Seashore that protects the, the really turtle habitat. And we're starting to see some rebounds. So, the the sea turtles are a great example, but on our coral reefs, I can tell you that one of the healthiest coral reefs in the wider Caribbean is right at the doorstep of Colorado, and that's the Flower Garden Banks National Marine Sanctuary, which is 100 miles off the coast of Texas, Louisiana. And and who would believe 100 miles out in the Gulf of Mexico, you have a coral reef that is 65 of 55 to 65 percent living coral cover. That's incredible. That's a, a, the average around the Caribbean is more like 15 to 20 percent. Wow, it's that low I'm, now. And I, I, I can't, we can't claim that sanctuary designation has kept it that way entirely. But I can say that without sanctuary designation, we were seeing large ships anchor out there. Their anchor chains just scarifying large areas with their chain. And by having a sanctuary there and prohibiting anchoring of any vessel, we've been able to save those corals from the physical impacts that we were seeing in the, in the 70s and 80s. Boy, and I'm so, sitting here next to Vicki Goldstein, who is an avid diver and director of Colorado Ocean Coalition, and her face is lighting up when you just mentioned that site off of Texas. So, Vicki, tell us what is so special in, in your Oh, it's that. remarkable. Um, I've been out there diving and was able to join the National Geographic photographic team and other NOAA scientists to witness the coral spawn. It is phenomenal. It's almost like being in a snow globe where you <laughs> can just see all the corals spawning in the evening and all the animals come out to feed on those coral spawns. And because they are remote and they are protected, the animals are enormous. So it's a magical place. All right, next it, diving trip. It yes. is. <laughs> it is. And, and, and just so, the, the corals were spawning last week, and they had a phenomenal show. Oh. It, it was phenomenal. It's like an upside-down snowstorm. 
<laughs> now, I've never seen a snowstorm here in the Florida Keys, but I know you all have seen some. Oh, yes, we have. So we're going to take a little station break now in case uh, you're just joining us out there on KGNU. This is How on Earth, the science show. I'm Susan Moran, and I'm here in the KGNU studio with Vicki Nichols-Goldstein from the Colorado Ocean Coalition. And on the phone from Florida Keys, we have Billy Causey from NOAA talking about marine sanctuaries. Um, so one thing, Billy, I wanted to ask you and, and maybe both of you is there's been some controversy around whether some of these kind of sanctuaries are actually doing more good or more harm, or is it where money should be spent? Because some say and some studies have shown that unless they're fully no-take, meaning absolutely off limits to all activity, they're not doing a heck of a lot of good to the various species. What's your response to that? Well, my response is that um, we're, we're never going to stop people from wanting to fish or go out and enjoy the environment, go diving, go snorkeling, go boating. So what are ways that we can, can work with those activities yet protect and conserve the resources? Here in the Florida Keys, we use a concept that's called marine zoning. And and we actually modeled it somewhat off after the Great Barrier Reef, who implemented it in the early 1980s. But it's a way to very practically take activities and to separate conflicting activities like, like hook and line fishing and spear fishing, where people are snorkeling and diving with their families, are conflicts. Or, or boating or jet skis or personal watercraft zipping around on the flats where fishermen are polling for bonefish or tarpon is a conflict. So we've been able to use marine zoning to bring some common sense about the way that people use the resources, yet not overly restrict all the areas. But we also use the tool of ecological reserves, which is our comparable to marine reserves, which are fully protected areas that are very targeted. They're put in the, in the, in the best habitats with the best remaining uh, marine habitats and the, the home for all the fish and the critters that make a living out there, but also where there are fish spawning aggregation sites. So from the spillover from these areas that we have more fish for the future. Yeah, and Vicki, do you want to add to that? Yeah, I just wanted to say that the neat thing about the National Marine Sanctuaries Program, which is one of the largest marine protected areas that we have in our country, it is in essence kind of like a combination of a national park and a little like a national forest. So there is that management ability to protect certain areas. But the nice thing about this is that you can also create, as Billy was saying, these no-take zones. So going in and identifying these very special breeding areas mm. that are critical for maintaining habitat and then for future generations, and then having people understand through mapping and buoys where you can and can't go. And I do think that we are moving more into the direction of creating additional marine reserves, and we've seen that in California, where we just say, I'm sorry, fishermen, we cannot go in there and take. And I think a lot of the communities that traditionally have gone in and fished and take, taken fish or abalone, whatever the case may be, are now seeing the spillover effect and are now becoming more of a champion to this zoning concept and to the marine reserve perspective. So I, I really am excited about the future of our oceans utilizing, utilizing these um, zoning techniques and, and marine reserves. Oh, it's really important. So it's not just rhetoric, but it actually is often the case that it may first be an ecological benefit that you're seeking, but it becomes an economic one for fishermen, absolutely, fisher folks, because what more of the fish come around the peripheries of these yeah, and you can, often, you can often see boats along the boundaries of these marine reserves utilizing and taking those 
animals, fish or lobster, um, who are going outside of the, the reserves. And you can, economically, this has been a big benefit for those communities. So it's, it definitely is a positive thing Interesting. In our well, we've got a couple more minutes. Um, Billy, tell us about this, um, what I think it was in June when President Obama announces intention to create this marine sanctuary in this vast swath of the Central Pacific Ocean, I think making it totally off limits to fishing or other activities? Yes, immediately. What, what's in the early proposals? Now, this is still out for public comment, and uh, it is a, a, it will be the, the largest protected area uh, in the ocean on the planet. And um, it, it's taking some of what was done under the Bush administration, but it's expanding around some of the islands in the Pacific, the Lion Islands, the the Sinai the area, the Marianas area. There, it's taking the entire exclusive economic zone, in other words, from from the territorial waters around those areas all the way out to the 200-mile limit. And that is what's proposed. Uh, extractive industries, extractive activities such as oil and gas development, uh, perhaps mining. I don't know if the, these things are currently in, in the plans, but these are things that um, uh, I hear that people are thinking about that are some of the activities that are, are sought to be managed. So it it will have a, a large footprint. It will affect uh, some uh, large uh, commercial uh, factory uh, fishing activities. And uh, I think it's being, you know, of course, people in the Pacific are paying very close attention to it. And we just have about a minute left. Vicki, why don't you tell us a bit about how people can get involved? Because this is actually a critical period. So in that and also in other ocean areas that you're working on with the Colorado Ocean Coalition. Yes, well, the thing you can certainly do is to support these endeavors by writing letters to uh, the, the White House, right, to NOAA. Um, in addition, the NOAA is doing a site selection process where you can actually nominate certain marine sanctuaries around the country. So in addition to what Obama is doing with that um, Hawaiian site, switching it from 87,000 square miles to 782,000 square miles, endorsing and supporting this whole initial action of, we love marine protected areas. They can be a real source of long-term protection, and um, it's something that we really would like to engage in. So communities around the country, no matter where you live, even if you don't see the ocean, can submit letters, talk about it, write letters to the editor, and really engage in conversation to promote these ideas and let other people know these are opportunities for our future. And I'll put on our website when I post it later some specific links to NOAA and to um, Colorado Ocean Coalition as well. And then you're doing a couple other things quite immediately with the Colorado Ocean Coalition. Yes, right? we are involved in the Green Beer Fest, which will be September 27th at the Boulder Band Shell from 2 till 10. And we'd love for you guys to check our website out, coloradoocean.org, to get more information and buy tickets. Well, thank you so much. That was Billy Causey from NOAA's Office of National Marine Sanctuaries and Vicki Nichols-Goldstein, founder of Colorado Ocean Coalition. Thank you both so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Susan. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. This week's show was produced by Joel Parker. Additional contributions by Shelley Schlinder and Beth Bennett. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Handel's Water Music. 
Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I am Kendra Kruger. And I'm Susan Moran. 